Welcome to another episode of the Your Double Podcast. I am your guest host today, Brian Duzay. SK is on assignment. Uh, he'll be back with us soon enough. Uh, for those of you who do not know who I am, I am a left-behind parent a parental abduction case involving Mexico that started back in 2008. Um, SK has actually interviewed me for this very podcast several months ago. Uh, if you're not familiar with my story, uh, check it out when you have a free moment. It'll definitely be some time well spent. Um, that being said, I've had the honor and the privilege to serve on the community advisory board here at Find My Parent. It's been it's been a blessing to be surrounded by such a diverse and talented group of people. And speaking of which, we're joined today by Find My Parent's quote unquote chief everything officer, uh, Danielle Adara. Danielle, welcome. Thank, thank you, Ryan. It's just great to be with you today. And thank you. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So in 2018, uh, Vincent Fischo came home to an empty house in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, his wife, his then three-year-old son and 11-month-old daughter had vanished. Every effort to contact and reunite uh, with his family has been blocked in pretty much every possible way, Matt. <clears throat> now there's there's a good portion of our audience who are listening that will already be familiar with what came next. Uh, Vincent started a hunger strike and really what could be conceived as a desperate attempt to reunite with his family. And really the goal is pretty simple. His goal is to stop, this, he would have stopped the strike with a positive ending or in the end, die crime. Now, it just so happened, uh, the Olympics happened to be going on in Japan at the same time. And some would argue that Vincent's story became actually bigger than the Olympics itself. And I certainly could attest to that. Uh, as a side note, Vincent was actually on this podcast, right, as that was actually um, starting off or kicking off uh, back in the day. So if you haven't heard that episode, uh, it's, as, it's as compelling as it could be. Please check it out. But, but today, we're going to get the whole story. And as a parent who knows all too well Vincent's going through, um, you know, I've been following this ordeal pretty closely. Uh, Vincent Fischel, it's an honor and pleasure to have you here. Uh, welcome to Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me today uh, again. And um, I'm, I'm pleased to be given an opportunity to share what my children are going through um, because I know that impacts uh, so many and actually too many children uh, around the world. Um, and, and I'm hoping that my testimony will help uh, children and parents alike to um, find comfort, know that they are not by themselves um, and know that you know there are uh, people out there who are fighting uh, to put an end to that. And, and I hope that you know, we will gather support through all these testimonies um, so that we can change the, the practices, uh, the laws uh, around the world and, and, and put an end uh, once for all to, uh, to, to child abduction. No doubt about that. Well, you know, Vincent, you, you were thrust in the spotlight, like I said, during the Olympics. Um, like I said, you were probably the bigger story of the Olympics than the Olympics themselves. So, you know, kind of before we get into the things that people don't know about your story, let's, let's, find out who Vincent the man is. Let's find out who Vincent the human human being is first. So, you know, let, let the people know, you know, where did you grow up and how did, how would you describe your childhood? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm, uh, I'm a 30, 39 years old French man. Um, I was born and brought up in, uh, in France. Uh, my dad was in the army, uh, which meant that we had to move uh, to a different place on average every three years. 
Um, and I think that actually built um, my personality, um, not only because we had to, well, we had to live on base. Um, and so, you know, we were a very structured uh, family, but also because as, as we had to move every three years, it made us very close to each other. So my parents, my uh, elder sister and I, um, I've always really relied uh, only on each other um, because, you know, we had to pack and unpack uh, every three years and, and get to a new school, make new friends um, all the time. Um, and, and that really meant that family values uh, in my family were extremely important um, and that we, we learned to, to rely on each other, um, which, you know, looking back, uh, probably helped uh, me uh, in the fight that I uh, that I put up with uh, over the last four years, um, because I I knew that you know I, I could not give up on my children um, for for the same reasons that I was um, given when I was a child. Um, so yeah, so then I um, when I uh, so I was brought up in in France. I went to uh, business school in in southern France, and then I um, I moved to a few places. Uh, for work, namely uh, Ireland, the Philippines, New York, London, and uh, then I um, I established myself in Tokyo uh, nearly 16 years ago, uh, working for uh, various investment banks, um, and uh, and that's who I am. Nice. So, what were your? I can relate to the army brat part. Well, assuming uh, I, I say army loosely, uh, I, uh, my father was a marine, U.S. marine. Um, so what childhood interests did you have back then, having been so cultured and moving around the world? Yeah, so initially my dad was um, was a part of a rescuing unit for the, uh, for the army in the Alps. So I was born and, and uh, spent my early childhood uh, in, in various places in the Alps. So my interests were uh, mountain biking, skiing, hiking, climbing, uh, so on and so forth. Um, which, you know, which was, uh, very interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, it was basically being always in, uh, in the nature, um, cause that's all there was, <laughs> there was not, not other distractions in, in the small remote places we lived at. Um, but it also meant, you know, um, going to, uh, going for runs, going for, uh, cycling expeditions with, um, with my dad's colleagues. So, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with, uh, much, uh, older people than I, than I was, uh, I remember, you know, there were three kids, my age, uh, where I, where I grew up at, I grew up at. Um, so, uh, but it was good. It was good. Nice. Well, you mentioned investment banking. So I got to ask, what were some of your pursuits professionally before you got into that or even during that? Well, I, um, I studied finance. I got a master's in finance. Um, never really, uh, I was never really, to be frank, passionate about finance. That's what I studied. And, and as a matter of fact, I started my career uh, working for a mannequin company in, uh, in the Philippines and uh, later on New York. Um, and on the side, uh, well, and after New York, I relocated to London and that's where my uh, investment banking career started back in 2005. Uh, and on the side, I've always been um, uh, active, uh, so working out, running, cycling. Um, yeah, I've tried to keep healthy uh, up until I came to Tokyo <laughs> um, because of the working culture here. When you work 12 hours and you have to commute another one or two hours a day, it became uh, impossible for me to, to be as, you know, as in shape as I used to be. Um, and then my, uh, when my son was born, um, you know, he, uh, my first son, he, he became, uh, the, the center of my attention. Um, and, uh, and I was focusing on, you know, my, my, my only interest was, uh, was my son really. Yeah, for sure. For sure. As a parent, I get that. So along the way you meet your now, I, I, I presume now your ex-wife, if I'm, if I'm saying that incorrectly, I apologize. But walk us through the chronology from when, when you met your your wife or ex-wife to the 2018, and the day that uh, that was the un, when the unthinkable happened. Yes, yeah, so I um, I was working for uh, for an English investment bank in London, and they uh, back in 2005, 2006, and they asked me to move to to Tokyo. So uh, I uh, I took out the job. Um, and the day I landed in uh, in Tokyo, I actually uh, met uh, what you know became my wife. Um, so at, at first, it was very 
very you know rosy. Everything was fine. Uh, she was showing me uh, the, the side of Japan. I didn't know anything about Japan. I didn't speak a word of Japanese at the time, and she was being very helpful. Um, you know, there were cultural differences, um, which, to be frank, attracted me um, because we had a lot to talk about, a lot to to discover together. And we got married uh, in 2009. Uh, and then we had uh, my, my wife, I'm still married today. Uh, my wife got pregnant in 2012 and uh, miscarried, unfortunately, um, which is when we found out that it was very difficult for us to have children. Um, but then my wife went to a fertility clinic and uh, underwent a um, treatment. Um, and then we had our first son uh, back in 2015. Uh, his name is Tsubasa. And, uh, and then we had another child, our, uh, our daughter named Kaide, back in 2017. Um, and after the birth of our first son, the, our, our life sort of changed. For me, it was a life-changing event. I, um, I was, at the time, I was offered a, uh, a senior role in, uh, in Singapore, um, uh, an Asian uh, coverage type of role, uh, which I declined, and I actually quit my uh, my work uh, the week Tsubasa was born, so that I could actually stay home. And I stayed home for six months. Um, being a father is something that I've always wanted. I remember being a teen. I've you know I was thinking about being a father. So I had such a great uh, time with my parents and, and and tight relationship with them that you know it's something that I was looking forward to having on my own. And uh, so I spent the first six months at home after. Tsubasa so was born, uh, went back to work. Um, and, and then that's when the, the life in the couple started crumbling apart. Um, there was um, a lot of uh, quarrels about uh, how we should uh, educate the children, uh, you know, who should contribute uh, to the hustle cause. Uh, so on and so forth. But like, you know, like I guess in, in, in every couple, um, but this is actually when I started finding out a lot more about the, the Japanese family culture, which I, uh, to be frank, I didn't have any, any clues about. And um, my wife not being able to conceive a child naturally, um, she asked me to have another child. And I said that, you know, obviously we had a composition. I wanted to fix this first before we had a, another one. And uh, in 2000, at the end of 2016, I came back home one day and she informed me that she was pregnant. Um, and I told her that, you know, it was uh, difficult for me to believe that uh, various reasons. Um, and I eventually found out that actually my, my second child was also conceived at the fertility clinic, uh, but that time without my consent or, uh, or knowledge. Um, uh, so, you know, when I had doubt, I, you know, I, I, uh, I basically uh, tried to speak to my wife um, and, and obviously there was a loss of trust and, and the conflicts were getting bigger. And there was, you know, my, my children was witnessing our quarrels. And, and to me, I, th I thought it was very unhealthy. So I asked my wife uh, for divorce in June, 2018. Uh, and she refused that. Uh, I uh, asked her to cancel the holidays in, uh, in South of France. Uh, two weeks later, uh, so we could actually um, start the process of getting divorced. Uh, she refused. She refused taking up calls from lawyers. Um, so we eventually went to France, um, and which which was a good thing, you know, looking back, because that was the first time for um, uh, our daughter to visit um, her extended family in France. And when we went back to, to Japan after that trip, um, uh, a lawyer that I had hired uh, contacted her a few times to ask her to uh, have an amicable split, um, and for me, I made it sure that in every communication between my lawyer, uh, my lawyer and I, I was seizing my wife, um, and I was, uh, you know, referring an amicable split to avoid the children from being involved in that uh, in that separation. Um, at least to isolate them with, you know, the the, the bulk of the noise. And she refused taking up calls from the lawyers. And one day on uh, Friday, August tenth. 2018, um, I got up to go to work and I was waking up early because uh, you know, in, in trading, you, you start early. And I was in the shower. My son woke up and he asked me to have a shower with me because you know, we used to play uh, and you know, spray water everywhere. So we had a quick shower. Um, then he uh, told me that he wanted to have breakfast. So I gave him breakfast and I'm, I put him back to bed and I told him that you know, we, I'll see him 
after work that day. Uh, so I went to work and the house looked absolutely normal. So I went to, to work and I came back around five o'clock at home. And as I entered the house, um, I realized that everything was gone. Um, personal belongings of my wife, my children, furniture, uh, the car, uh, the, the house had been, um, had been emptied. And the only thing that were still there were the, the walls of the house. And so I immediately tried to, uh, to call my wife um, and I couldn't get the hold of her. I um, called my lawyer uh, and I explained to him what, uh, what had just happened. And, and thinking back, it's, it's, it was an insane moment because um, my lawyer basically very calmly told me, well, no, this is it. She, she abducted your, your children and you're never going to see them again. Um, and at that time, I had been living in Japan for 12 years and it was unthinkable that this sort of things could happen. Uh, and I was thinking to myself, I was like, you know, the, the brutality of uh, the, the abduction, um, you know, clearly a judge would, would consider that as, you know, uh, as unsuitable, you know, to be, to be a caregiver. Uh, you cannot do that. Um, so I did not panic at that time. I called my dad, um, and he was like, look, you know, you try to document everything you can. So, um, I called back my lawyer, asked him to uh, get the police to come and, and testify that the house had been emptied. I couldn't get a hold of my children and my wife. And he told me that the police would not care. And, and he was dead right. So I took photos, I, you know, of, of the empty houses, empty closets. Um, and, and I went to bed and the day after I, I started looking, um, parental abduction in, in Japan on, on Google. And, and that's when it really struck me. I, I found out that, you know, on, there are 400 children being abducted in Japan per day. And, and those were official figures discussed in, uh, in, in the parliament. And, and that's when it really struck me. And, and I remember like falling apart that day, um, cause I, in a really, I came to the realization that there was a high probability for me that I would never be able to see my children again. So, um, I, you know, I spent the weekend talking to friends, talking to, to my family. Um, and then that's when the battle started really. The, the hair on my arms are literally standing on my, on, and listening to this because, uh, uh I had a similar, I had a similar realization. I call it D-Day, November, November tenth, two thousand eight, and and, and um, it's eerily, it's it's crazy how eerily similar these stories are, and and we're almost ten years apart in our in our situations, Vincent. Um, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not even gonna bother asking you what the early signs of red flags were because I think you already got them. Uh, what I'm curious about is when did you realize, and and maybe you already answered this, when did you realize how tough Japan was going to be to deal with uh, when you realized what you were dealing with uh, after that moment? Yeah, well, on the, on the, as I was doing more and more research, I, I, I found that it was a common practice and uh, child abduction was not considered a... Uh, uh, illegal. It was not considered uh, uh, a harm to the children, um, and if any, um, it was actually um, incentivized by the Japanese authorities through various actions. Um, and, and I remember at that time I was in Japan for twelve years. Um, spoke a bit of Japanese. Was working for a Japanese bank. Um, I was very integrated into the Japanese uh, mindset and culture, uh, but I had never heard that. I had never heard about child abduction in Japan being so frequent um, and so uh, in a way legitimate. Um, so I, I ended up doing a lot of research. I, I contacted a few NGOs who confirmed uh, what I was the most afraid of, that you know, it was um, in a sense game over for, uh, for my children. Um, and uh, so it was a slow process because you know it's you know you do a lot of readings. You're trying to understand the environment you're in, uh, the the tools you have available to to fight back, um, and but at the same time as you're doing that, you have to um, you know live. You have to live. You have to go back to work because uh, you suddenly have to pay you know legal bills um, and and 
and it's new and there are actually very few people who can actually advise you um, on how to react. And, and as I was talking to friends and family back home, for them, they were like, oh, you know, it's only temporary. Clearly, your children will be will have to come home. You know, this is, you know, you cannot kidnap a child these days um, and, uh, ch- and children cannot disappear. Little did they know, uh, because, you know, we're nearly four years into the uh, the ordeal and um, um, and I haven't seen my children. As a matter of fact, I had the first proof of life two weeks ago from the family court, the Japanese family court, um, who were kind enough to uh, let me know that my daughter thinks I'm dead and my son thinks I live in Hawaii. That's, that's pretty much all I know, uh, all I've known from my children for the last four years. Um, uh, so, yeah, so... It was it was tough to realize that. It took me maybe three to four weeks because um, I wanted to get confirmations. And then I spoke to lawyers, I approached NGOs, and uh, and I realized what was going on. And so that at that time, I you know I remember my dad saying, you know, son, you know, it's going to be tough. Uh, you have to think, look after yourself. And he was he was right in that respect because um, you know it's a it's a slope you can easily sleep on. Um, and, and I think that, that my parents and, and close friends were very afraid of that. Um, so for me, I, I quickly decided to fight back. And that was the way that that's how I really coped with it. So Vincent, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I can't imagine how hard it is to kind of go back to those those terrible memories. And Really, as a mother of two children, I my heart breaks every time I hear these kinds of stories. And I can really, my children are about the same ages as your children, also a boy and a girl. And I can, I can really attest every day to how important it is for them to have both me and their father in their lives. There are so many things that my husband, he does with them that, that I, I'm not capable of doing. And so many things they benefit from, from having their father in their lives. So I'm, devastated that your children do not get that luxury, which is not even a luxury. It's a basic right as well. You've talked a lot. uh, It's very clear from what you said that the Japanese laws were of zero help to you. In fact, you know, they, they, they only hurt and devastated you and your children more. You are also, uh, you're French national. I'm not sure if your children are dual citizens. So how, how has the French or even European laws helped or hurt you and your children's case? Sure. So um, first of all, my, my children have uh, dual nationalities. So they, are, they, they hold a French passport as well, as, as, as well as Japan. Um, when, I, when it first happened to me, um, of course, I contacted my embassy uh, in Tokyo uh, 10 days after the abduction. Uh, the first 10 days were uh, difficult. And then I, I went to the embassy they basically uh, initially told me that uh, they couldn't do much because um, this was Japan. Uh, this was the way things were done in Japan. And at the time, and to me, that's, that's extremely, you know, it was very difficult to swallow that is they told me that at that, that year in 2018, uh, Japan and France were celebrating the 160th uh, um, friendship anniversary. Um, and therefore they, you know, we couldn't make too much noise, uh, which, which was insane, uh, you know, as, as you deal with that and you hear this sort of uh, feedback from the people that are sent to Japan to protect your own, uh, it was it was tough. Um, so I think in, initially the French authorities were not helpful at all. They did not want to get involved. Um, three French fathers committed suicide back in 2010 and 2011 um, for the same reasons. And they've, you know, it was clear that they had tried to, to bury the issue. Uh, and the additional excuse that uh, France was giving me is that the, the abduction itself had happened on Japanese soil and that Japan was sovereign. Um, so I, I realized that I would not get much help. Um, and I quickly realized that for me to get help from the French authorities, I would have to provo- provocate that help. Uh, and, and which is what I did in, in a sense, you know, you're trying to twist uh, your authority's arm uh, so that they have no choice but to help you. Um, Really, the, the, the French authorities in itself at first did not do much. What, what I managed to do is to leverage a, um, a French law, uh, actually thanks to my uh, lawyer, Jessica Finel. She's a, she's a human rights lawyer based in Paris, and she's truly outstanding. And at the time, she was defending Carlos Ghosn. 
who was facing another different crazy situation in Japan. And I was reading about uh, this lawyer in, in uh, representing uh, Gon, and I contacted them. I, I sent them an email, and within four hours, they got back to me and they said, yes, we know we'll, we'll help you out. Let's, let's discuss. And I called them and they explained to me that in French, there was a law that there's a law that says that as long as a person has holds French citizenship at the time of the crime, uh, you can um, uh, claim, uh, you can start a criminal case basically in a French court. Um, so we built the case and we started a, a criminal, uh, we filed a criminal complaint to the, to the court in Paris for both child abduction and child abuse, unfortunately, um, which was also the reason why I, you know, I wanted to get divorced. And the um, and that basically we filed in uh, May of 2019. It took us about like four to five months to to build the case, which was very it, it was very uncommon an uncommon thing to do. Uh, and I think you know we're sort of creating precedents here. Uh, and then uh, when I when I spoke to Jessica Finel, she. Um, she asked, she asked me, you know, she wanted to learn about the, the system in Japan. And I was telling her that it was so common in Japan. Um, and she told me that we should file a case to the uh, United Nations. Um, and so we decided to organize a class action. And I worked with uh, Jessica. Um, I recruited uh, parents in my situation. So they, we, we started a class action with 10 people, uh, mothers and fathers from four different countries representing children who had been abducted both from outside Japan and from within Japan. Um, and we, in a sense, we're suing Japan uh, to the uh, Human Rights Council of the United Nations for gross violation of human rights, uh, mostly using um, the Convention on the Rights of the Child that Japan ratified in 1994, uh, which stipulates that a child should not be abducted, uh, should not be separated from uh, you know, his family environments, and that uh, a child should maintain personal and um, healthy relationship with, with both parents. And I remember at the time of filing, uh, Jessica informed me that it was a very long shot because the nature of this complaint to the UN Human Rights Council are usually, uh, you know, they're usually dealing with um, uh, mass rapes in some parts of the world, uh, you know, mass, mass killings, uh, very, you know, life-threatening situation. Um, and she told me that it was a good way, however, to uh, start having uh, medias pick up on the issue. So we went ahead, we filed it, and luckily it was actually, well, luckily, I think she's did a, an amazing work. Um, it was accepted. So for the last, uh, since August 2019, Japan has been under the scrutiny of the Human Rights uh, right Council of the United Nations. Um, and they have to basically explain them the process, uh, the, the violations, how they justify these violations, and what are they trying to do to remedy them. Um, so that was one aspect of you know the legal system that we tried to uh, to to leverage, um, and then uh, I found out that at the uh, United uh, European Parliament there was also a way to file a petition, um, which I did with uh, other parents, and notably one uh, Italian father that I've been fighting uh, alongside with uh, in in Japan, who's in a similar situation as me, and we filed a petition to the Committee of Petition of the European Parliament, uh, claiming that our children had been abducted and it was a gross violation of their human rights uh, as European citizens themselves. And our petitions were accepted. We were given an opportunity in February of 2020 to present to the European Parliament. Um, and I remember it was, uh, it was very difficult to get there because of Corona, but we managed to, um, to fly from Japan and come back to Japan within 48 hours um, so we could uh, well, present the situation to the EU. And uh, after presenting to, to the parliament in Brussels, the European parliament voted on a resolution uh, in July 2020, asking Japan in those terms to put an end to the abduction of European children, uh, which, you know, a resolution is not, not binding, uh, but it was a good way to, uh, to, for the European parliament to take position. Uh, there was a lot of press release on it. And, and it was also a way to um, expose the hypocrisy of the Japanese authorities. Uh, I remember two days before the vote, the uh, Japanese delegation to the European Parliament uh, sent a, a letter to the, to the head of the Committee of Petitions saying that 
Japan was uh, not doing anything wrong. Uh, the children's rights were fully respected. Japan was respecting the rule of law and, and international treaties that it had ratified, which obviously was you know, absolutely wrong. But they were really afraid of that vote. And uh, the parliament went on, voted for the resolution. And the day after the resolution was passed and, and multiple articles were written in, in the international press, the Japanese Ministry of, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs organized a press conference in Japan uh, saying that the accusation of the European Parliament were groundless and there were no issue uh, with the Japanese practices. So that was actually, it was successful not only in a way where, you know, we ex exposed the issue uh, internationally, uh, you know, the issue, yeah. And, but it was also a way to demonstrate that the Japanese authorities were really trying to hide it. Um, and, and, and they were not clearly in a position to cooperate as they were still in denial. Um, so that was another, an, another way that we leveraged the, uh, the legal system. And, and I also found out uh, later on that Japan had ratified a strategic partnership agreement with Europe, um, which was based on the respect of human rights, the rule of law and treaties that both parties uh, were uh, members of. So we did a, uh, a GoFundMe we raised money, we hired um, uh, Jessica Finel again. And, and to be frank, Jessica was actually working pro bono uh, at that stage. And all the money went to a, uh, a PhD in European law that we hired a consultant to build a case. And we filed a case uh, to the uh, Legal Affairs Committee of the European Parliament in 2019, at the end of 2000, sorry, at the end of 2020, requesting the suspension of that strategic partnership agreement on the basis that Japan was not respecting and honoring the, um, the treaties it, it, it ratified. Um, we got uh, dismissed in the first instance, unfortunately. Um, I'm still appealing the decision because uh, they have not, the European uh, Legal Affairs Committee has not given, given me a, an explanation. Um, I think they realized that uh, Japan is doing something wrong, that this treaty should have never been signed uh, and they cannot justify uh, their action. Um, so even to this day, I'm still trying to lobby various uh, members of the EU Parliament to ask for the suspension of that agreement until Japan uh, fixes the issue. Um, and eventually, uh, late last year, um, I was I was uh, informed by uh, my lawyer uh, Jessica Finel that the French court, uh, the French criminal court in uh, in Paris, had issued. A, an international uh, arrest warrant against my wife um, for both child abuse and child abduction, and that she was going to be prosecuted in France. Uh, the, the trial is about to, to start in Paris, uh, so there'll be you know, a, a ruling, um, which is very sad to, you know, to get to that, uh, to that level. Um, but that, that has actually helped me get the Japanese media's attention who had until then refused to, to discuss the issue. Um, and I think when Interpol uh, issued that, that, that warrant, it really became um, a turning point in, uh, um, in how the issue was exposed within the Japanese media. Uh, five TVs, uh, five Japanese TVs reported on the, on, on the warrant and five TVs reported about the hunger strike I had done four months before, uh, which they had refused to actually uh, talk about initially. Um, so that's that's really you know the the legal angle that I've uh, you know that I've tried that I've used uh, because in Japan everything has failed. I, I went to the police four times uh, to claim child abuse and child abduction, even with you know DVDs, video recordings that I had, uh, and I don't want to get into details, but it's it's insane. Um, and eventually, the police was so annoyed at me that they told me if if I went back to to try to uh, get a complaint filed in Japan, they would arrest me on kidnapping attempt. And uh, I went to the public prosecutor directly twice in, in Tokyo, who told me that the police should first do an investigation. And then when I went back to the police with a letter from the prosecutor, the police told me that the prosecutor had told them that they should not do an investigation. So, you know, you're really facing a wall, uh, an incredible amount of, of hypocrisy. Um, and, and you know you cannot get anything done uh, in Japan. I went, of course, through the family court system. Uh, I mean, to this day, I'm still married. I still have full parental authority, um, and I, 
I cannot get to see my children. Um, and to give you an example, there's, a, there's an Australian father who, while having still parental authority, uh, went to uh, his in-laws uh, house to try to get news uh, from his kids. Six months after the abduction, they called the cops and he spent 45 days in the Japanese prison uh, for basically no reasons. Um, on, the, on, on the positive side, I think that the Interpol warrants got uh, well, sh shook things up a bit in Japan. Um, the, the warrant was issued at the end of October, reported at the end of November last year on, on Japanese TV here. And a few weeks back, the head of the National Police Agency in, in Tokyo uh, published a, uh, a document uh, informing all police stations across Japan that parental child abduction should be treated as such and uh, complaints should be registered. And that's, uh, I think that's a huge win. It is to be seen yet whether, uh, you know, we're going to go beyond the initial complaint, whether that there's going to be a prosecution. But I think it is clearly uh, a deterrent for anyone thinking of abducting their, their children in Japan now. Um, so, so let's see how it goes. Uh, I'm going back myself to the police for the fifth time on Tuesday next week. Uh, with the Interpol warrant uh, and ask them also why they haven't acted upon it. Um, as, as we all know, the Japanese have been very quick at uh, asking uh, Interpol, um, you know, to, to bring uh, Carlos Ghosn back to Japan or the tailors, uh, but yet they haven't done anything yet when, uh, you know, when the warrant has been issued on, on the Japanese citizens. So it, it will be interesting to see how they react to that next year. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's It's definitely mind-blowing just the lack of interest and willingness to to protect children from from the japanese authorities and family court i i do want to add the father you mentioned who was who was jailed for attempting to see his children we've recorded a podcast with him scott mcintyre and so i would invite anybody who's interested in hearing about his story to go ahead and and listen to his podcast i also think it's amazing everything you've done on an international level um, but at the same time, it's, again, mind-blowing that nations and entities that supposedly have these strong values and ethics uh, refuse to actually stick to them when they should be protecting their own children, i.e. French citizens, French children here. It still boggles my mind today that they will choose their relationship with Japan over the well-being of, of their own children. Um, so, so thank you also for for sharing about that experience. I'm hoping that you know there's some progress with the arrest warrant and um, this issue to the police that they need to treat these as parental abduction cases in Japan. Something else I want to talk about is the fact that usually when we talk about parental abduction in Japan, people abroad and even actually people in Japan almost always assume that this is a problem between foreign men and Japanese wives after divorce. But the reality of the fact is that this is very much a domestic problem. So there are reports that as many as 210,000 children lose access to a parent every year in Japan. So that makes 24 children every hour that are losing access to a parent in Japan. And the vast, vast majority of those are actually children of two Japanese parents. So. I would like you to talk a bit about what the locals are doing. What are the Japanese doing? How are they affected? And what are they doing to push for change in their own country? Because it's amazing what you're doing to try and get the UN, the European Parliament, inter, you know, foreign governments to push for change. But the reality is, is that the Japanese, they also have to take ownership of the problem. And they also need to push for change in their own country. So what's happening on that front? That's right. So... Going back to the first part of your uh, of your statement, um, what, and, and I'll be quick on that. I think one of the reasons why um, our government uh, are not uh, inclined to help is that they um, they call the the abduction of our children a parental abduction. And I think you know this is something that we need to change to begin with. An abduction is an abduction. You know, be it the you know, the neighbor uh, taking your ch uh, your children and disappearing with them, or you know your ex husband or wife. Um, the, the impact on the child uh, is the same. And I think we need to change the mindsets of all our governments, of the you know, family courts across the world uh, by you know, asking them to stop diminishing, decreasing the, the, the importance 
the gravity of the situation because it's it's done by one parent. Um, and you know, I often take the case of you know one parent abusing sexually you know one of their child. You know, we, we don't call it a, a parental uh, sexual assault. You know, it's it's the same. I think it's important to to note that a crime is a crime regardless of who it's been committed by. So that's you know that I, I wanted to to say that. Um, with regards to how the Japanese are fighting back, and I think you're right to highlight that, because um, there is clearly a misconception. I think uh, the child abduction in Japan is, um, I would say, is done from one Japanese parent to another in 90, 95% of the cases. And the reason why we tend to associate uh, that with international couples is because international parents fight back, whereas Japanese people don't necessarily do. Um, and because in our culture, it's clearly not acceptable. Uh, you know, it's a, we we see that as a, as an abuse of of you know the, the children's rights. We we consider children as human beings, whereas in Japan, it is considered as a, a child is considered a, an object from a uh, uh, from a judicial perspective. And and in Japan also, there's a culture that um, you never uh, go against the flow, um, and and therefore only an, an outsider can can do it. Um, when I when it first happened to me, there was very little mobilization from the Japanese community, uh, despite them making up the, the bulk of the abductions. Um, and and little by little, when they saw that the press was getting involved, um, uh, when they I think that the, the big inflection point um, in the Japanese community mindset was when the European Parliament condemned uh, Japan uh, through the resolution. This is when people started becoming a lot more vocal about uh, about it, and they started uh, organizing protests across the country. Um, you know, protests in Japan are not what you know we know as protests in France. Um, you know, you've got two hundred people uh, walking quietly in the street, but it was a huge change in the in the Japanese mindset, saying that you know, yes, you know, your, your child has been abducted, but you should actually stand up for your child and. In fact, this is not a right. This is more an obligation that you have towards your your, your child. Um, so that was, I think, the first step of the Japanese uh, pool of victims uh, mobilizing. And I think that the next leg, uh, at least from what I can see, was it really happened during the hunger strike. Um, I think the, the biggest impact that the hunger strike had last summer um, was that it made... Um, mothers victim of, of, of that crime um, you know, come out. And, and I think it was, it's very difficult. Obviously, uh, you know, child abduction impacts uh, children the most and, and parents come second, but those, we're still impacted. And it must be very difficult for, uh, especially in Japan, uh, the Japanese society, for a, a mother to come out and say, my husband abducted my children, because the first reaction would be that, you know, she's clearly not a suitable mother, which is not true uh, in, in most cases. She, she's simply the victim. And I remember on, on day eight of the hunger strike, um, suddenly around one o'clock, 1 p.m., uh, it was a group of 20 moms who came uh, where I was staying. And uh, they told me, they came here to express their support. They, they represented five different nationalities, including Japan. And, and some of them wanted to, uh, to express the support. And, and they were telling the press who was present that day that some of them had not seen their children in, in six or seven years. Uh, they didn't even know whether their children were alive or not. And I think at that moment on, this is when the, the, the public, especially in Japan, realized that it was not a, a race uh, issue. It was not a, a racial issue. It was not a, uh, a sex issue. Uh, and that child abduction was really not discriminating in Japan. And in fact, it, it, child abduction more and more happens from uh, happens with the dad abducting their children in Japan. And, and I think this is caused by the, 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 the fact that the, the system is incentivizing uh, the abduction. And by that, I mean that not in the Japanese law, because the Japanese law already exists to protect the interests of the children. So the, the, the issue is not with the law itself, it's with the operations of the law. But the way it's treated in court is that the first child abduction is not criminal. The second one, or the take back, if you wish, uh, becomes criminal. And therefore, when you, you know, it's the first mover advantage. Uh, and when you know that there's a risk, you know, that 
something in a couple goes wrong and there's a risk that uh, your wife or husband is going to abduct the, the, the child and that the first one who, who commits that crime wins. Uh, and I hate using wins because it's a lose-lose situation um, for the children and parents. But then you end up taking the, you know, making the radical move um, not to be in the position uh, of not seeing your children for the rest of your life. Uh, and that's when people started really uh, seeing the, the, the flaws in the way the, the, the justice system and, and the police system operates in Japan. Wow. So what we're seeing in Japan is not just turning the blind eye to parental child abduction, but really is the encouragement of this happening. That, that is correct. Um, a child in Japan is considered as, a, as, an, as an object, as a, if you want, like a piece of furniture of the household where it belongs to. Um, and so when you live with your, you know, in my case, when I lived in a, in a house where my children were abducted from, until the day she abducted the children, from the eye of a judge, uh, and again, that's against the law. So the issue is not the law itself, it's the rule of law in Japan. But when you enter the court system, the judge considers the children uh, part of a household of you know, my wife and I. But the minute she moved them to another house, from, from that minute on, from the first night, the children became the property of the new household, which I do not belong to. And it, it, therefore, uh, from the eyes of a, of a judge, I've lost all the rights uh, on my children. And I'm an outsider. Uh, and again, four years later, I still own parental authority. I haven't divorced. Um, and, but for the last four years, I've lost essentially all the rights that I have on my children. So, Vincent, we, most of us know that you did a hunger strike during the Olympics, as Brian mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Um, I can only imagine this was not an easy decision to take. This is, you know, a pretty, pretty big event to do a hunger strike. So can you talk a bit about your motivation behind doing it? And what was really kind of the last straw that pushed you and said, okay, this is, I have to do this. There's no other sure. option. So um, I, I, re- I decided to do the hunger strike back in February, 2021. Um, I was in Paris. I, I flew back to Paris to meet the, the criminal judge uh, as my criminal case was, uh, was moving forward. And I was alone in Paris and, and I was trying to, uh, to understand what strategically could be done next. And, and then I realized that I had met uh, President Macron back in June 2019 when he came to Tokyo um, for the G20. And I met him, I spoke to him about my, my children, the situation. He that night spoke to the Prime Minister of Japan about it, um, but nothing happened. Uh, I had taken the case to a French criminal court, um, but I knew already that the Japanese would not care, you know, in case any positive outcome uh, you know, would come out of it. I, I had taken the case to the uh, highest human rights instance in the world. I had taken the case to the EU parliament. I had been in the press. We had done documentaries in France and Italy documenting the issue. And I was like, you know, what's left? Um, I had spent a ridiculous amount of money uh, in legal fees and, and private detective to try to find my children, probably more than one can make in a lifetime. Um, I was about to lose my home. Uh, and and psychologically, it was very difficult for me to, to keep on working uh, while dealing with that ordeal and 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 having all these cases. I I currently have six open cases across the EU, UN, uh, court in Japan and France, um, which is time consuming and, and, and really draining uh, on, a, on a psychological level. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we all have to live with the fact that we don't even know whether our children are alive or not. So that, that adds to it. And I was in Paris and I said, well, what do I have left? I, I have no more belongings, no more assets. Um, I still have 85 kilos and, and, and that I can give to my children. Uh, and then that's when I decided to do a hunger strike because that, that was my last possession. Um, and, and of course, as a, you know, as a, as a father, I'm, I'm willing to give it all. Uh, so when I, I flew back to, to Tokyo, I quit my job. Um, I packed up everything. I boxed up everything um, just in case to, to be sent to my parents in case anything happened to me. And I started uh, prepping for the hunger strike. Uh, so, you know, I uh, I did a lot of cardio. Um, I, I 
I spoke to me, as many medias as I could um, because I wanted to to make it count because you only have one shot. And I, you know, I, I planned the date. I knew that Macron was coming to the Olympics, but I didn't want to start the day he was coming to the Olympics. I, I really wanted him to know that I meant business. Uh, so I knew that the first, I would start feeling the physical uh, strain of the hunger strike, you know, after two weeks. So I, uh, I started the hunger strike two weeks prior prior to Macron's visiting uh, Tokyo for that reason. Uh, I looked for a site um, because of uh, the Olympics. A lot of sites were closed to the public uh, in, in Tokyo. But at the same time, I wanted it to be connected to the Olympics. And because of Corona, journalists were not meant to be leaving the Olympics area. So I had to be close by. Um, it was rainy season as well in Tokyo. So I, you know, I needed shelter. I needed a bathroom because I Usually you do a hunger strike in a, in a hospital or in, or in prison. So you have access to uh, shower and, and bathrooms. Uh, but I decided to do it outside and, and, and camp outside and, and stay until my, my children came back to me. Um, so there was a lot of prep going into it. And uh, I met dozens and dozens of, of journalists, um, which at first were a bit uh, skeptical about the, you know, the validity and the impact it would have. But I think uh, it really took off. Um, and then on uh, July, sorry, July 10th, um, I, uh, I set up a camp. Well, camp is a big word. I had, I had two flags and, uh, and a yoga mat. Um, and I, uh, I set up camp at the, in front of the station, the main station for the Olympic Games. Yeah. And for anybody who wants to watch basically your journey through this hunger strike and meet a number of children and father, fathers and mothers who are you know, experiencing the same thing that Vincent and his children are experiencing, you can uh, visit Find My Parents' YouTube channel and we have, we have shared documentation of his entire hunger strike. So I would highly recommend that. And as I watch those videos, because um, I went back and watched them, it's been a while, I noticed that there were a number of local politicians who visited you during the hunger strike. Um, so, so what are what are they trying to do to to motivate Japan to change, you know, from inside? Yeah. So, the, the political support is growing within Japan. I remember when it when it first happened to me uh, nearly four years ago. There was one uh, lower house uh, member who was really keen on, uh, you know, who's really pushing the agenda forward, and uh, and me and and Tommaso Perina, the, the Italian father, who's who's you know who's been fighting uh, with me on that issue. Uh, we visited him many times. Uh, we educated him, and, and we tried to gather support. Now there are uh, a list of 83 members of the the, part, the Japanese parliament who want to make a significant change. So, you know, there's been a growing political support in Japan over the last three or four years, and, and that's why I'm confident that you know, if we carry on, um, we'll see the light at the end of the tunnel very soon. Uh, very soon, meaning like you know, a couple of years to three years. I hope, I believe, and. During the hunger strike, uh, it was 10 of these politicians came, uh, members of the upper house and, and lower house combined. And uh, one of them is called uh, Shibayama-san. And he actually, he runs a uh, bipart bipartisan league uh, to uh, uh, not, not to impose, but to, um, to have co-parenting work in Japan. Because right now, no one, very few people co-parents in Japan. Um, and so he's really trying, he's, I heard that he's draft a, a bill that he would like to submit to the parliament this summer uh, to have joint custody in Japan and, and co-parenting as a, as a default, which would certainly help uh, reduce considerably the number of, uh, of abduction. And so he, you know, he came, he really wanted to, to show his support. Um, and he, he, I had met with him before the hunger strike. I, I informed him that I was going to do the hunger strike. Um, because I had been associated to him and I didn't want my action, because this is Japan, uh, I didn't want my action to, in, to impact his image uh, because, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a supporter of, of the cause and I really wanted to be constructive with, with Japanese politicians. I wanted to tell him that it was not an attack on, you know, the Japanese sovereignty. Uh, it was simply a way to, um, to show how desperate we are uh, and that this is the last thing we have uh, for our children and, and we're willing to give it. So he came, uh, I think it was on day six, seven, I think. Um, and he, he made a speech and he said that, you know, the situation currently in Japan is not right and that it, it has to change for the, for the sake of the children. 
And and that day, you know, he when he came, there were uh, Japanese children who were the victim of that and 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 came to to talk to me. So he was also able to to meet with them, and and it was a very powerful day. I'm glad that you brought up um, the children who visited you because. This is another thing that I think a lot of people forget about. We we hear a lot from parents because obviously it's very it's much easier for parents to speak out about the issue. Who we don't hear from a lot are children or young adults who were children when they were abducted. And, and these are the voices that at Find My Parent, we really want to amplify and get out to the world because we all know at the end of the day, yes, parents are definitely affected by the issue, but it's children that pay the very heavy price for parental abduction and often for the rest of their lives. You know, this is not a puzzle, the relationship between a left behind parent and their child. It's not a puzzle that can be just be put back together. Sometimes children lose an entire language if their parent is is non-Japanese, an entire culture. And even if they're, you know, both speaking the same language to Japanese, they they you can't just rebuild a relationship overnight. So I would love it if you could talk a bit about, you know, what were you hearing from those children or young adults who had been children when they were abducted? What is their take on it? How, how were they affected? How did it, you know, hurt their upbringing, their life, where they're at today? Yeah, it was, um, for me, that was, you know, uh, with the mothers who came to, to express support, that was the, the, the other major win. And, you know, it's when the children started speaking out. And I think that's when they realized that they, they had a platform to do so. Um, and, and, and as you rightly said, um, the real victims here are children. And, and, and of course, you know, we parents consider ourselves as, as victims. But what hurts us the most is to know that our children are hurt. Uh, and there's nothing we can do about it. I think that's, you know, that's the biggest uh, challenge for, for us parents. But if we have, you know, the, the maturity to try to cope with the issue and we're still struggling, we cannot think of, you know, how children think themselves and, and feel. And... It was on the second week, I think, uh, when the social uh, media started, even in Japanese, uh, reporting about the hunger strike. I had a, I had a few children coming, um, and and they were Japanese, and I remember like a few of them came, sat with me, and they just, they just wanted some counseling. They just wanted a, a place to you know to speak at, and it was tough for me because I was you know sleeping and and staying all day, twenty four hours in front of the station in in that heat, um, but I. They, you know, they gave me the strength, really, it, because I could picture my children in 10, 15 years, you know, asking questions, basically, and trying to find out what happened to them. And some children came to me and they, they told me that they, they hadn't seen their moms or their dads for, um, for years, uh, some of them 10 years, and, and that they were missing something. They felt like they were missing something. Um, but that was it. They just wanted a place to, you know, to, 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 to speak at some others. Um, told me that they, uh, one of them, for example, was a 39 years old man, actually, um, Yuma, who came on the last day. And he told me that he realized what happened to him during the hunger strike. Because what you have to understand is that child abduction happens everywhere uh, in the world. You know, this is not something that the Japanese can put a patent on. Um, the, the difference in Japan is that the, the, the authorities are incentivizing the abduction and blocking the child from finding uh, his or her other parents. And Yuma, that, that, that gentleman, uh, came to me and he told me that he initially thought it was normal to grow up with only one parent. And he never really asked any question because it's, this happens to one out of every four child in Japan. So when you go to school uh, in Japan, if you say that you only have a mom or a dad, no one will question that. Uh, as opposed to, you know, I guess if you're in the States or in Europe, people would be asking about your other parent. Um, but then... He, while he was reading about the hunger strike, he said, well, actually, I, I haven't been abandoned. I've been abducted. And uh, he didn't hold any grief uh, to his uh, to his mom uh, in, in any capacity, which I think is good uh, because we're not here to, uh, to, 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 to interfere with the relationship between the children and their parents. But he, he was wondering about his dad and he told me that he actually looked for his dad. He found, uh, he found out where his dad was living and he came to me to ask me how he should go by to uh, talk to his dad again, um, which was very, you know, I was basically looking at someone who was my age. Um, and, and, but he was also representing what my children were experiencing. And I was like at 39 years old, and I don't blame him at all. I, I blame the, the, the structure of Japan. Like he didn't even know how to contact his dad for the first time. 
so it was a win in a way where he realized what happened to him and he was trying to fix it, um, but he had no support. Uh, so that was a different sort of feedback that I got from uh, from Japan. And I think that's why, you know, I think Find My Parents can really help there. And, and that's when I really got involved with that, with Find My Parents, because, you know, we have to provide a platform for children to speak out, to uh, seek help, be it material help, psychological help. Um, and, and since then, I've had also other children who came to me and told me that they had realized what happened to them um, through the hunger strike. And, and that's a great feedback. And I think that's how we, we're going to change the Japanese mindset where from the minute on where growing up with only one parent for no valid reasons is going to go from being normal to being abnormal. Um, you know, this is when the children themselves can have the, or being empowered, really. Um, but before we get to that level, we have to provide platform to help them. Absolutely. And, and I would like to add that, yeah, that is exactly our mission and our, our goal at Find My Parent is just to support these children. So any child that's listening who thinks they may have been abducted or knows they have been abducted from any country and to any country in the world, uh, Find My Parent is always here to support you in a way that is comfortable for you, in a way that will not put strain on your relationship with either parent, uh, in a way that can be anonymous to protect yourselves because we understand um, there's a lot of emotion and vulnerability that comes with this issue for children and young adults. And, and we're only here to protect you and support you. And I would love, Vincent, if, if any of those children are listening here and, and maybe they're not ready to reach out, like, what would be your message to them? Like, what would you advise them to do? What did, you know, perhaps you advise this 39-year-old man to do if they believe they may have been abducted? Yeah, that's a very good point, uh, Daniil. I, I think... To me, the most important thing is to, to make them realize that they are not the reason uh, of the situation or the, or the, the, the consequence uh, of it, and they're victims. And I think as a, you know, through that ordeal, I, I met with many uh, psychologists, uh, not for myself, but you know, try to understand um, how my children would feel, what I could do to support them if you know, fighting publicly was good for them or it could hurt them more. And, and I think, the psychologists who are talking to uh, victims of child abduction, be it you know young children or even adults now, they they very often feel like they have been they are the cause uh, of the of the abduction, um, and and that that's the first part. You know, they really have to consider themselves as as true victims, um, and and I understand that it's difficult for a child to um, one, after you've been raised by one parent it's difficult to try to find the other parents because you don't want to reactivate bad memories. You don't want to upset the other parent, which is the only parent you know of. Because um, you don't know who's, you know, how would the other parents react? You know, what kind of parents the other parent is? Um, and, you know, for many kids, I think it's difficult for them to put the relationship they have with uh, the parent who abducted them um, at stake in order to find another parent that, you know, in the end may not be suitable neither. So, but I think it's, it is their right uh, as, as a child and as young adult uh, to find out where they came from. Um, and, and don't be afraid, you know, you may not like what you are about to find out, but at least you will never have a doubt. I think the most not knowing is probably the hardest for a child. Uh, not knowing if your parent is still alive, not knowing the true reason, uh, you know, that, that, that led to, to the situation. Um, not knowing whether the parent loves you or not. Uh, try to find an answer. And again, you know, it may not be satisfying. Um, I think in the majority of the cases, you know, you, you, children will find out that they have been very missed that the other parents tried everything they could in their power to be reunited uh, and to defend and protect uh, their, their own children's rights. Um, but just make the step and, and you're not alone. You know, there are NGOs like Find My Parents, but they can talk to, um, they can talk to school, they can talk to their friends. There's always, they can go to a psychologist, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of psychologists, if, if a child was walking in into their practice and asked for help, they would not ask any question. They would help. Uh, they would help right away. So you may feel alone out there, 
Um, but first of all, uh, there are many people in their situations um, and they must look for answer. It's, it's their right. Um, and, and even if their rights were violated a few years ago, uh, taken away from them, um, they, haven't, they haven't lost them. It was just taken away, so they have to take it back. Um, and if they want change, them alone can trigger the change. And, and I'm sure there's a, a loving parents, you know, somewhere who's, uh, who's waiting for them to make that step. Thank you all for listening to part one of a two-part series with Vincent. Please stay tuned for the second part of this episode that will be released in the upcoming days. I would remind everybody that's listening today that the goal of this podcast is to share knowledge with you and to let you know that you're not alone. With that said, if you need any specific legal advice, we do recommend reaching out to a qualified legal practitioner for that advice. If you're a minor or perhaps don't understand certain parts of this episode, please do reach out to a responsible adult or someone who can explain the episode to you. We've done our best to make sure that this episode doesn't offend anybody. Of course, if you have any questions or comments, you are more than welcome to reach out to me anytime at danielle.daura at findmyparent.org. If you are, have been separated from your parent, or perhaps someone you know has been separated from their parent, please go to our website, findmyparent.org, where you can start the search today for your missing parent. With the help of our artificial intelligence technology, you can be matched and reunited with your parent or child. If you're part of an NGO, private company, or any other type of organization that is passionate about this topic, please get in touch with us on our website as well. We would love to work together to create a greater impact. Okay, everybody, that's it for this week. We hope to speak to you next week. Until then, take care. Yeah, can be just like me. You're double, you have to do.